on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week we continue our summer opera road trip, having visited Dallas and Kansas City by stopping in Knoxville, Tennessee with a special Hall of Fame. And then we reach into the listener mailbag and pull out an S-E-C-A-Later question. Plus, two-minute drill, no kids at the opera? Well, this dad thinks that's a marvelous idea. Look, if you're watching on TDO, Dallas Opera Network, you want to subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You can even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The whole team back together again, apart from... Matt Cummings, who screwed everything up last week, has now bailed out <laughs> this week as well. Oliver Camacho, how are we going to punish? Wow. Throwing Matt under the bus. So, folks, yeah, we we had to cancel last week's show because our colleague Matt was having internet problems, and uh, he basically wrote <laughs> this, the the segment we're going to be doing today. So, I'm going to be stepping in for Matt as Professor Cummings. He'll be doing his uh, best Matt impression the whole time. <laughs> I don't have. He's going to grow his hair out and get. <laughs> <laughs> Weston Williams, you actually went to a sporting event. I did. I went to a sporting event. It was women's soccer, Chicago Red Stars versus the Orlando Pride. Uh, Orlando Pride, unfortunately, did win that game. But it was a good game. I enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, is this what I should have been doing this whole time on this show? <laughs> Ashley Hardgrave nursing an Olympics hangover. A deep, deep Olympics hangover just in time for more pro athletes to go through more tomfoolery. Uh, so if you saw the news at all last week anywhere in the Midwest, uh, ex-Cub, current Yankee, and anti-vaxxer when it comes to COVID, Anthony Rizzo, mm-hmm. has tested positive for COVID. And I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to file my nails and I'm not going <laughs> to be bothered because he's New York's problem now. However, Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson has now had COVID twice and is still iffy on the vaccine. So... I don't know how to help people these days. For those of you who are not from Chicago, Anthony Rizzo was part of our World Series team. And I thought he had great legs. I think he still has great legs, even if with COVID. They're would, dumb legs. It doesn't matter. Oliver. I would They're still. I would those still... legs are contagious, Oliver. Yeah, before we, quarantine. Before we talk about opera, uh, I just have to say that I love the Olympics. I'm crazy about it. But this was the most frustrating year. And it's not the fault of the athletes or of Tokyo. It's the fault of NBC and deciding what we needed to see and when to put it on and what channel. There were so many different channels you could watch it on. And then uh, all the news of things happening that you would get on your alerts or on Facebook or whatever on on NPR. I was mad at NPR. It's like, I just woke up. You're telling me what is I'm going to watch at eight o'clock tonight. Thank you. Thank you very much. So at least um, the Winter Olympics, I forget what city they're in this year. Are they? Uh, Beijing. Beijing. We're going to have the same problem. Um, Paris 2024 summer shouldn't be as bad, but not great. (laughs) 
The <sighs> Cubs uh, swept by the White Sox in the Crosstown Classic this weekend in Chicago. Can I just say that those Wrigleyville jerseys that the Cubs wear are so disgusting. They can't <laughs> hold a candle to this amazing boating jacket that I now have I on. wasn't going to say anything, but I did suggest that we all absolutely roast you in our names on Zoom. <laughs> well, for our podcast-only listeners, if you remember that scene, Mary Poppins, when they go and have tea and they're <laughs> dancing with the penguins? And by boating, do you mean drunken boating? Because I can't <laughs> imagine you wearing that jacket sober on a boat. You can't say Beetlejuice three times or George shows up. <laughs> and now... Ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. The OBS Hall of Fame, the hallowed halls are open yet again. This time we turn to Knoxville, Tennessee for our inductees. No Matt Cummings on the show again this week. Oliver Weston and Ashley, who's it going to be? So just a little bit of inside baseball for all of you listeners. Um, I used to do a show. I still do a show uh, called Opera Now where I spent so much time researching and listening to recordings and writing long things and presenting my ideas over the course of weeks on like a one opera. I would spend like three weeks on it and each segment was supposed to be like 20 minutes ended up being like an hour. So uh, that p- point of my part of my podcasting career I think has come to an end. I feel like <laughs> our very own Matt Cummings has taken the crown from me, taken the tiara, so to speak, <laughs> of being like the, um, I don't know, the historian on on opera. And I was just thinking we're in summer mode and there's not a lot of news and it's been such a weird year and we can't really talk about performances that much. So why not take the opportunity to talk about a piece that singers, uh, just American singers, just love so much. And it's a piece that is adjacent to opera because really only opera singers sing it. But it's one of those things that we, when we're in training, we're exposed to it and we hear it and we collectively think this thing we're going to listen to today that we're inducting to the Hall of Fame is so beautiful and so American and so uh, nostalgic. And even if you are not like a white little boy who grew up in Knoxville. (laughs) Somehow, yeah, somehow this piece um, just makes you feel nostalgic. And I'm going to let Ashley dive into why that is and how that works with this piece. But it's called Knoxville Summer of, oh my God, Summer of what? 1915. 1915. 1915. There it is. There it is. By Samuel Barber. It's based on a text or it's a setting of a text by James Agee. AG, uh, thank you. Uh, and it was written in 1947 <laughs> and premiered by the great Eleanor Staber with the Boston Symphony. Um, the text is the uh, opening of a larger uh, prose poem called A Death in the Family, which mm-hmm. posthumously won the Pulitzer for James AG. Um, and it's from the perspective of a little boy uh, recalling his childhood in 1915. Uh, and apparently it was written 
uh, as sort of a, a memory of James G's uh, father who died when when he was a little boy, like six years old. And the coincidences are, or the one main coincidence is that when Barber was setting this to music, his father was also very sick and I think died shortly afterwards. So mm-hmm. he was also experiencing uh, some, you know, family longings and, uh, you know, paternal, um, you know, feelings like of, of loss. So um, there's a, there, there are those two histories or, or anecdotes that coincide with each other. I think there's a third one. I forget who I, or what, what, what either maybe was a conductor or a singer who is part of the premiere also is having like some father issues. So uh, there's many things that, that went into the creation of this piece and where you just automatically feel there is something so sad about this piece, but also so beautiful. And uh, yeah, I, we're going to get to some music right away, but you know, Barber was a big fan of AG and uh, he also set a a song um, sure on the shining night, which is one of our favorite songs that we like to sing. (laughs) Um, and if you, you know, look at Barber's setting of this, you listen to it, he really does create this idyllic quality in the music and it's very Rhapsody like, and it doesn't really feel like it has a lot of structure. It just feels like, uh, what do you call it? Thoughts when you're stream thinking, of consciousness. Stream, stream of consciousness, yes, yeah. yes, stream yes. Of consciousness, yeah. yeah. And <laughs> the we stream s- of your consciousness went right, yeah. <laughs> right around that word. And, you know, when we think of opera, we think of something that has a point A and a point B and a point C. You know, you're going somewhere. But this piece just sort of like is stuck in a moment. And there's lots of like nostalgia and free association. And it feels somewhat spontaneous. Um, once again, from the point from perspective of a small white boy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm going to let Ashley take over here. But we're going to hear a little clip right now. Uh, this is just like the principal theme um, that once you hear this theme and then you realize, oh, it's used as like a framing device. So here is our first clip. It has become the time of evening when people sit on their porches rocking gently and talking gently and watching the street and the standing up into the steel of possession of the dream. Yes. 
So uh, this clip that we've just heard is from the second most popular slash famous uh, set of recordings of Barber's Knoxville, which is from Leontine Price. So, okay, that opening theme that you hear, it's this hypnotic lilt. It establishes why we love this piece and it keeps coming back to tell us where we are. So Leontine has for the record, a beautiful studio recording that we're going to hear a little bit from uh, that was done in 1968 with New Philharmonia and Shippers. But for my money, my favorite recording of Leontine is what we just heard. It's a 1959 recording, same group, Carnegie Hall, think it's a bootleg, uh, in the studio recording, which is, for the record, very beautiful. She, in the studio recording of Leontine, she like diminutizes her voice, possibly as like a dramatic uh, choice because she's portraying a little boy. But, you know, so from a dramatic tip, I get that. But this live one at Carnegie Hall, she sounds more like Leontine. It's much more of that, like, full meat and potatoes steak dinner <laughs> that we're used to hearing from her. Uh, but yeah, so that theme, you're going to hear it a lot in this piece. It, uh, it it gets us started and it keeps coming back. Um, I, I love this piece. I know lots of singers do, but I'm going to go ahead and stake a little extra bit of a claim here. I This is absolutely one of my favorites. I call it a hug. It's just a vocal musical <laughs> hug. I love to sing it. I've been doing this piece in various iterations for two decades. I hope to sing it for at least two more decades. My wish for every musician is to get a chance to be part of this performance one time and for every opera lover to get to experience this live one time. It is canonical it's beautiful it is again it's just it's just a big hug uh speaking of 20 years ago uh i uh i used this piece as a part of my graduate research i i've written <laughs> a number of papers on it i have scoured recordings left right and center i've really dug into the poetry pretty hard i'm officially like a sucker for barber in general like i love his stuff. oh absolutely totally but this one hits me like especially hard. The way that the vignettes that you get in this are set both in the text and in the music, it, there, there are a lot of things that throw back to like memories of my own childhood, even though I was clearly not a little white boy in the summer of 1950. <laughs> um, there's just things that come back to me. Um, but for me, the place that you got to start is with the text. It all starts with that AG text. Barbara's beautiful. No question. I could talk about that all day long. But the marriage of his creation with these words in particular, that's what makes this so incredibly magical. That tableau of that like small town America, specifically in the South, it well, guess what? It resonates with me pretty deeply because um, I had that moment as well. Um, and, you know, it's so funny because it's such a beautiful vignette, but it can also come off as something that's a cliche that we scoff at. But there's something beautiful and nostalgic and we keep coming back to it. The phrases of, you know, the rough, wet grass of the backyard, the hueless amber of early summer evenings, the the smells of vanilla, strawberry, pasteboard, starched milk. Mm. Those things sound so weird, but at the same time, when you hear them, there's something beautiful and you can almost immediately relate to it. I don't even know what pasteboard is, but I'm like, yes, James, I'm with you. This sounds great. Um, it's so simple. It is so, however, enduring. I feel like these words jump off the page differently to me every time I read it and every time I interpret this piece in performance, I honestly, I don't think I've ever sung it the same way twice because there's so much in there and there's so much to play with and there's so much to do with it. Um, you know, we'll get back into themes and forms and whether or not this has any. Um, but for me, the thing that gets to me is just how simply and how beautifully we are told of this, you know, boy in his childhood and how much he loves 
all of these things around him, how this is such a beautiful, fond memory for him. It, it's clear to me, at least, that he's really proud of this moment from which he comes. Uh, but in this, what I call a gorgeously firm move, uh, he lets us know that, that while it's where he's from, it's not who he is. Because uh, I think that's one of the things when you look back wistfully on on a different time in your life, I think one of the really emotionally intelligent and frankly defiant things to do is to frame it in who you were then versus who you are now. And he does say, I will not, there are these memories will not, not now, not ever, you know, dictate who he has become. They will never tell me who I am. And again, this is something that I resonate with very deeply uh, because, you know, growing up in the South, there are a lot of things that can be expected of you when you grow up in that type of an environment. And if mm. you move away from those things, there's there's often a conflict internally with, you know, how do you resolve the person you are now versus the person you were then? And he does that so beautifully, but he sneaks it in at the very last second. He spends 20 minutes painting this like gorgeous picture of like days gone by. And then he's like, but that's not going to fully inform you as to who I am because I'm different now. Uh, but anyway, that's just a little bit of a waxing poetic for me on this vocal hug. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, and so, so yeah, I believe, go ahead, go ahead, Oliver. No. So we, uh, this is a piece that um, many singers have recorded it. Some really fantastic singers have recorded it and we heard the A theme. And if we're sort of dividing this piece up into A, B, C, Let's say A, D, and then back to A again. <laughs> the four things we can really, really listen to are A, B, C, and D. So let's hear our B, uh, beginning with the line, uh, a streetcar racing. Uh, and here is uh, the woman who gave the premiere of this piece, the great Eleanor Stieber, uh, with the Dumbarton Oaks Festival Orchestra, conducted by William Strickland. <laughs> My pick uh, for who I, I think does the ideal sort of uh, version of this piece to me is the, uh, the 1989 studio recording 
uh, sung by Don Upshaw, who's who who is in her element in this one. Uh, which that's with the Orchestra of St. Luke's, conducted by David Zinman. And honestly, I can't think of a better piece for her voice and like artistic like vibe yes. than this one. Um, I, I would say like if, if we were inducting Don Upshaw into the Hall of Fame separately, sh- this piece would also be the recording. And who knows, we might we might do that at some point. Um, this is just a it's just such a great a great piece because she really thinks about every line. She's uh she's always about you know the clarity of the text finding the psychological sort of line throughout and really following, which is what makes this piece so interesting to me, because the original poem was written very quickly um, as an experiment. Exactly. An experiment in sort of like, you know, free form poetry. And Barber took the sort of the same thing. Obviously, it took him a little bit longer, um, but he did still did it in a fairly short time period. Um, and so there are these like moments where you have like this really long line. You think you, you understand where it's going. And then there's like this really weird shift. All of a sudden the rhythm changes. The, the, the quality of the sound is different and not in like a logical way. Um, that would, that would arise out of, you know, really formal sort of classical composition, which is what makes it so interesting to me. Um, but the thing is, in order to sell that, you need someone who is going to really, really go with you for every turn of the piece. We, we, we keep saying that, um, this is from the perspective of a child, which it is, but also it's a little bit ambiguous. It's hard to tell which moments are the child seeing something, experiencing something through naivete, and how much is the adult remembering when they were a child, finding that sort of uh, exact same sort of, uh, trying to find that feeling again and not quite succeeding. And it melds into it. It really does uh, feel like, you know, you're you're at twilight, you've been told to go to bed by your parents. And you're sort of slipping away, but you're not there yet. You have like a, a thought, a thought, a thought, a thought. And it's and Upshaw is just really, really up for the challenge on that one. Uh, she has like the innocence down. She has that that really great Upshaw quality where she like where everything sounds really bubbly and light, but at the same time, and American. That's and the very American. American. Is yeah. The very most American, American voice. Um, she's maybe not the most dramatic choice for the role compared to like a Leontine Price, um, but she, but the, but capturing that innocence of the child in the sleepy town, which I've been to a number of times. I love Knoxville. Very it's different nowadays town. from what I'm told by all my friends from 1915, Oliver. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, well, George has got his 1915 jacket on. That's right. He is well on his way to the Piccadilly as we speak. But the the thing that what that strikes me when you listen to Upshaw singing, because you know I'm from the South too, um, I'm feeling nostalgic right here as we record, record because we're in the middle of a tornado watch right now, which is just my entire childhood. Um, but it is very much uh, it really captures that atmosphere around around what's going on. There's there's this there's never. Uh, there's never a sense that even when it's the the older man looking back on his childhood that there's that there's like a separation like he still feels that atmosphere he still knows it i went back home uh recently for the first time in like 6 years and i felt the exact same feelings that i feel when i hear this piece uh especially with don upshaw 
uh, and she's absolutely in control of the flow of thoughts, but she never like supersedes that flow, you know, if, if that makes any sense. Um, it's a great performance. Uh, it makes you feel like the piece was written for her. Let's hear a little bit. I believe this is from the C section. Uh, where she sings about now is the night one blue dew my father has drained has coiled the hose low the length of the lawns a frailing of fire who breathes parents on porches etc etc just all these great southern images um, with some some foreboding in there but something really really gorgeous too So this leads us to what I guess you can call is the climax of the piece. This place doesn't really have a climax. It's just a bunch of little vignettes. Um, but if there is an emotional climax of this piece, it's this part here. And I can't even like read the text because it's just so just the love of your family. And this yeah. little boy says, there they are on the porch. My mom, my dad, my uncle, my aunt. And, you know, he says, my, you know, my uncle, he's a good guy. You know, my mother, she's a good woman. My father, he's good to me, you know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh it's too much. Yeah. So it's, Oliver, I'm going to take over. And then when I start to burst into tears, you can just come back. Um, but yeah, basically it's like, as much as that beautiful A section of like, you know, that ba-da-da, ba-da-da. It's almost, it's a it's like a lilting floating. Um, this next, you know, section that we're talking about, which, you know, some people call it like the D section. Um, it's, if there, you know, if we were in an opera, we've had the overture, the curtain rises, and there's this like really firm, you know, set of music and expedition while there's some sort of action before the opening aria. That's this section, that bum, 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 ba, da, ba. It's, it's less flowy. It's less wilty. It's much more matter of fact. It's Copeland-esque in the way that it kind of goes along, both in chord structure and in the melody that comes from the orchestra and then eventually from the singer. Uh, and so it's, you know, truth be told, as much as I love that A section, this is secretly like the one that gets me the most <laughs> because of all of the things that Oliver just mentioned, that insanely beautiful text that just talks of the love of family, but also the fact that it is a little more like 
matter of fact, uh, you know, the duple meter instead of something that's a little bit more triple, like what we find in the main theme. Um, and I loved your point, Weston, about feeling like, you know, a voice like Upshaw's, while it's so different from a Staber, while it's so different from a Price, it also, this piece feels like it was made for her. And I think that's one of the beautiful and borderline genius things about this piece is that there are a number of voices that can sing this. As long as you mm. get somebody that can, at their height, make it over an orchestra, you can do this piece. So you hear various weights of voices that will take this on. You hear big, honking, huge sopranos who vocally weigh a thousand pounds. And then you have somebody who's a little bit lighter and cleaner in their attack and approach like an Upshaw. And they're both beautiful. They're both things that sound like they're made for that singer. And while this is usually done by a soprano, sometimes you will hear it done by a tenor, which leads me to the next clip that I want to tell you about, which is one from Mr. Russell Thomas. Friend of the show. Yeah. Friend of the show, Russell Thomas. So yeah, so there are in fact tenors that that do this, um, but it's really fantastic. This is a this is a recital he did about six years ago, uh, the Rosenblatt recital in London. It's him and I'm gonna guess Simon Lepper uh, is how I pronounce this gentleman's name on piano. So it it sounds completely different. It is, however, equally gorgeous. I encourage people to not sleep on tenor recordings of this piece. Um, most of the time, you're not going to hear them with orchestra. You're going to hear them with piano. But it gives the singer a chance to be a little more broad in their brushstrokes when they're singing. Because you can't do the little light, tiny, wilty stuff when you're trying to overcome and overpower an orchestra. When it's just you and a piano, you can add in a lot more colors and textures and different dynamics to really get into the telling of the story. So while it sounds really different and not what we would think of as like a traditional Knoxville sound. It's absolutely stunning. And I encourage you to check out the rest of this recording after we give you a lovely little taste of it right now. On the rough wet grass of the backyard My father and mother have spread quilts We are like there My mother, my father, my young, my aunt and I too am lying there. We are not talking much, and the talk is quiet of nothing in particular. Of nothing at all in particular. Of nothing at all. The stars are
is my father who is good to me. Russell Thomas with pianist, we assume Simon Leper from one of the Rosenblatt recitals singing that section, which I can't listen to right now, um, but it is too much. Once again, we're talking about Barber's Knoxville Summer of 1915, a 15-ish minute rhapsody for voice and orchestra. Relatively short, but it packs in so much. You got so, so many so places. Much. Yeah, it's not opera. Uh, but we are, yes, it is. Yes, we are, it's operatic. <laughs> Basically. Uh, but we you know we just experienced an Olympics that now treats skateboarders and whatnot. We have rhythmic gymnastics and dressage and all these things. So this is sort of like our weird, you know, corner of what we consider to be, you know, classical vocal music. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is Knoxville summer of 1915 the dressage of opera? <laughs> If we can get a horse to dance, anyway, I'm on Earth. It's a piece that if, if it's the first time you're hearing it, please go online and look at the text and just sit down and listen to a recording of it start to finish. And I promise you, you will come back to it again and again. Samuel Barber is probably my favorite uh, American composer because there's, there's something so genuine uh, about his writing. I, I think a lot of the sort of you know, mid-century American composers who were, you know, like, like your Copelands and such. And uh, they they feel sometimes disingenuous to me at times, a little bit overly kitschy. Um, but Barber never feels that way. Whenever he has a, a, a little naive American moment moments, and this piece is full of them, it feels absolutely real, absolutely earned. And it's just an extraordinary piece. And lastly, Ashley Hardgrave. It is, it's a major piece in the canon. And if you've never heard it start to finish, uh, once you do, you'll know why. Uh, it is, you know, we're currently, you know, in early August. We are in, you know, the last month, the waning weeks of summer in what has been a really, really challenging time. And I want to spread joy and beauty. And so my hope for you, however you are, wherever you're listening, I want you to Find out what time sunsets wherever you are. And I want you to set aside the time right before that sunset. And I want you to sit on a porch or a balcony or look out a window where you can see that beautiful, like, hueless amber early evening. And then I want you to put on a recording of Knoxville, summer 1915. And I want you to watch that sky and I want you to listen. And I think that that will bring you a beauty and a joy that we all deserve. And one of the recordings that you can do that with, besides the early Leontine that I mentioned, uh, is the one that we're going to close this out with, which is going to be the 1968 uh, studio recording with the new Phil Harmonia Orchestra.
thanks again to Matt Cummings for setting up that that segment. That segment had more passing of the ball than the European Championships <laughs> in July. Uh, into the listener mailbag. And Laura from Baton Rouge writes, I wrote to y'all a year ago or so about LSU football and how Coach O, Ed Orgeron, would make a fantastic operatic character. One, I'm so over the Tigers after news broke earlier this year about how badly they bungled Title IX. They did. So now accepting suggestions for a new team to follow. And two, what do y'all think of reports that Texas and Oklahoma want to join the SEC? Is there an operatic equivalent to this drama? Ashley, which part do you want to tackle first, <laughs> one or two? We'll start with one. We'll move into two. So, Laura, <laughs> first of all, hey, girl. Second, great point about LSU and Coach O. Anybody who's got parents that go by Baba and Coco is already halfway to being operatic character. So They're very singable syllables, yes. I think. Baba and Coco. Ba, uh, ba, ba. <laughs> It it is going to be really interesting to see how this season goes for him because he's in the hot seat. It's kind of like win or be fired at this point. So it will be deeply interesting to see what his Tigers do over the course of the next football season. Um, You asked for recommendations on a new team to follow. If you want to stay in the SEC, might I suggest the Arkansas Razorbacks? (laughs) Oh, man, getting the prop out and everything. (laughs) If you're on the podcast, we just saw a Razorbacks t-shirt. Hear me out. They need all the support they can get. And since the Battle of the Boot is no longer such a thing with you being from LSU, this would not be sacrilege for you. Also, their seasons are pretty unpredictable. They lose when they're not supposed to, and they win when they're not supposed to. So it keeps it interesting, keeps it exciting and exhilarating and devastating all at once, just like any good opera. Weston may have an idea for another team, but between you, me, and the Dorsals, they're doing fine, okay? They're fine. The Hogs need those good vibes from you. And now that we have Sam Pittman, and he has a year under his belt on the field, and he's got a year's worth of recruiting, all signs point to a better record this go-round. And Razorback Red, as we see, is a very flattering Color. Now, uh, when Laura wrote into us, of course, th- it was just reports that Texas and Oklahoma were going to join the SEC. That's a done deal now. Uh, Ashley, is there an operatic equivalent to this drama? There's a few. Um, you know, in terms of selling out your soul for the, you know, chance of a better fiscal future. Yeah, I feel like there's a couple of places. Faust, that okay. Play. Right. One Get or it. two Fausts. Uh, that was actually what I was going to say. Faust's story comes to mind. Uh, you know, this... Uh, this notion of like, you know, it's basically, okay, so the contract with the SEC is, you know, it's a done deal, but not for a couple of years. And the whole reason that they're getting in now is because there's an ESPN contract worth $3 billion that starts the year before these moves are going to take place. Now, the thing is, you know, this is very antitrust. It's very corporate conglomeration. The blob that is the SEC just continues to absorb teams. (laughs) Here's the trouble, though. When those two teams leave the Big 12, the Big 12 is fully in atrophy. Uh, Kirk Herbstreit said something that's basically like, you know... The decision makers aren't caring about tradition and rivalries. This is an arms race and it's all about the money, which it exactly is. It's all about the money. For an opera comparison, again, 
Plenty of places where artists or companies bargain away their integrities for money. We've talked about Faust. That happens a couple of times. Uh, if you look at this from a different angle, I think about this generation of young artists that's kind of happening right now and, and the people that were contemporaries right after me. They're looking mm. for places to land in young artist programs. Singers all try to get into the same, like, I don't know, six young artist programs. Mm. And there's a huge bottlenecking that happens in that applicant pool because they know that the prestige that comes with being in one of those six programs is a big deal. And it's basically, you know, it's a, in their minds, it's a career maker. It's a kingmaker. They'll get more attention and more development, possibly in some smaller program. And they might even become a better artist when they have that attention, but they are survivalists in this, you know, world of opera and they don't feel safe enough to take the chance on something that's not one of these big bottleneck programs. And I feel like, Texas and Oklahoma are doing the exact same thing. They're doing this for the money, but they're also doing it because they understand the prestige of the SEC and that it's bigger than the Big 12. So there's another operatic comparison that's not just Faust for you. Great answers here. Of course, you can write to us at operaboxscore@gmail.com with all of your listener mailbag questions. Two-minute drill. It's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in COVID land this week. (laughs) (laughs) Under the terms of its COVID restrictions, the Metropolitan Opera will not permit children under the age of 12 for the upcoming season. The company indicated that fully vaccinated kids would be welcome once they were eligible. The Met will require proof of vaccination to maintain its full-capacity mask-optional season. San Francisco Opera will be taking similar measures for their upcoming season, requiring patrons over the age of 12 to show proof of vaccination, and patrons will also be required to wear a mask during performances. Anyone who breaks the rules will be, quote, promptly removed from the performance venue. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Broadway theaters have also announced that audience members must be vaccinated and must wear masks to attend performances. Children under 12 must show a negative COVID test to attend. The announcement comes right as the first plays in 16 months will open on Broadway, and this edict applies to all 41 theaters. Covent Garden today announced the resumption of its international cinema program after 16 months of closure. Those broadcasts reached 2,000 movie theaters worldwide. Opening show in September will be The Nutcracker. Quote, it will form an integral part of our plan to secure our future, says the Royal Opera House. In a series of articles for City Journal, Heather McDonald argues that American orchestras and opera companies abandoning the canonical works and composers of Western classical music, to be clear, she means white composers, amounts to a suicide pact. McDonald's opinions have drawn ire from musicians and leaders working for racial equality in classical music, including us at OBS. Friend of the show, Opera Philadelphia, has canceled two virtual offerings from their current season on the Opera Philadelphia channel. For personal reasons, Sir Willard White has withdrawn from the production of Il Cimarron. He is irreplaceable. And a grievance from Opera Philadelphia Orchestra has caused the company to remove the Anthony Roth Costanzo vehicle glass handle from its planned releases. According to the Aspen Times, friend of the show Kimon Marat received a rare standing ovation for his performance of a Handel aria with the Aspen Music Festival's Conducting Academy Orchestra. We have come to expect audiences being thrilled to first hear Marat's voice, but it is, in fact, rare for a standing ovation to occur during a masterclass. This one taught by (laughs) co-directors Patrick Summers and Renee Fleming. Yes, Aspen audiences, we know, we know. 
<laughs> Speaking of Renee Fleming, America's soprano is sharing her, quote, healing breath technique to help COVID long haulers who struggle to regain their pre-diseased lung function and capacity. Fleming is offering this therapy in a new video series, which has also featured guests like Vanessa Williams, Audra McDonald, and friend of the show, Lawrence Brownlee. In trade news, Alexander Pryor has been named the music director of the Theater Erfurt beginning in 2022. The 28-year-old conductor currently leads the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra. Chelsea Opera Group has named Gianluca Marciano as their new artistic director. Marciano is currently the artistic director of the Al Bustan Festival in Beirut and the founder slash artistic director of the Festival Suoni del Golfo in Lerici. On the disabled list, after an operation to remove a brain tumor, conductor Michael Tilson Thomas will cancel public appearances through the end of October, including concerts for the Kennedy Center's 50th anniversary. We wish MTT a speedy recovery. Exit stage right. French tenor Thierry Dran has died at the age of 67. He was known for his interpretations of Nadir in The Pearl Fishers, Don Ottavio in Don Giovanni, Almaviva in The Barber Seville, and Benedict in the opera Beatrice and Benedict. Italian tenor Giuseppe Giacomini has died at the age of 80. Known as Beppi to his fans, Giacomini enjoyed a long career specializing in the verismo and dramatic repertoire with great success in roles such as Otello, Don Alvaro, Radames, Calaf, Andrea Chenier, and Canio. He possessed a particularly thick, dark, powerful, and ringing tone that made him one of the most important Italian tenors of the 20th century. Polish-based Kazimierz Kowalski has died at 70. Kowalski had a diverse singing career before transitioning into administration in the 90s, becoming Teatr Wielki's general and artistic director and founding the Polish Chamber Opera. Under his tenure, Wielki became one of the few theater companies in Poland to actually turn a profit. And on this day, August 9th, in 1853, it was the birth of Russian soprano Emilia Karlovna Pavlovskaya, who created the roles of Maria in Mazeppa and Kuma in The Enchantress, both operas by Tchaikovsky. In 1862 was the first performance of Hector Berlioz's opera Beatrice and Benedict, with the composer conducting in Baden-Baden. In 1874, it was the birth of homosexual Venezuelan <laughs> French composer Reynaldo Hahn. <laughs> Why is that funny? In 1914, it was the birth of Hungarian conductor Ferenc Fricsé. We don't know if he was gay. Uh, in 1949, <laughs> the first performance of Karl Orff's opera Antigone in Salzburg. In 1956, Birgit Nilsson made her debut, her American debut, at the Hollywood Bowl. And happy birthday to Ukrainian soprano Maria Gulagina, born this day in 1959. And that's your two-minute drill. So that was Giuseppe Giacomini with an unnamed pianist uh, from a recital he gave in Seoul, Korea. 
uh, also the place where he sang and the Olympics. <laughs> uh, that was from, I believe, 19... Uh, 91, 90, I believe, right? 91, yeah. Uh, yeah. A little bit of the aria Amorti Vieta uh, by Jorda- from Giordano's Fedora. Um, man, so many, when after Giacomini died, I saw so many of my singer friends, especially tenors, uh, write their own little tributes mm-hmm. <laughs> to him. And uh, yeah, what an important, not a household name, but man, if you were lucky enough to have him sing Kalaf in your Turandot or your, <laughs> or your Kanyo and your, um, you know, Pagliacci. I mean, Kanyo is a role that usually gets cast pretty well, but Kalaf doesn't get cast well typically, nor does um, Polione in Norma. And there are such critical roles, even though like the soprano clearly is the star of the show. Uh, if you have a bad tenor in those operas, it can really spoil the evening. And how lucky would you be to get that guy with that voice on stage singing with such great technique, with real lyrical spinto tone quality, solid technique? Uh, maybe not such a great actor. <laughs> I don't know if you could see without his <laughs> Coke bottle glasses, but um, but what a voice, man. Weston, so masking mandates in place at the Met and on Broadway. Good idea. Is it going to work? I mean, right now, it seems like the best idea that we know. Obviously, um, we're in a kind of a weird moment because uh, I, I even as even as little as like two weeks ago, everything seemed to like be like feeling like it's opening back up. But now numbers are spiking. The Delta variant is around. We seem to be maybe hitting a wall on people who are willing to get vaccinated. Uh, it's going to be... Uh, I think any measures they take are probably a good idea. I mean, I do feel bad for any kids, you know. Um, what do you who... mean? This is a marvelous idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like spoken like a true dad. Yeah, I don't want to take my kids to the theater. I want to have a reason to say no. Oh my god! I'm I'm just speaking as someone who whose first opera was when I was uh, five, I believe. Um, I, uh, and you know, I did, I did so many when I was a kid and I, I feel like it really shaped me into the, uh, monster I am today. And I think that <laughs> I do really feel bad for all of these kids who might not miss it, but I do think that safety for everyone else is the most important thing. So I am not, I would not be surprised if measures get more and more strict. Um, and hopefully they don't have to get any more strict than this before they cancel. Okay, so um, yeah, this was sort of a weird thing that Opera Philadelphia uh, posted or announced that they were going to drop two uh, two productions from their digital season on the Opera Philadelphia channel. Uh, one because apparently um, Sir Willard White, who withdrew for personal reasons, you can't replace Willard White, and I agree. <laughs> so true. Sir, I mean, Sir, Sir not Willard just for White, this performance, but for like just everything in, life in general. Yeah. And then the glass handle, uh, I believe, was a performance from years ago, and uh, they didn't have a good uh, complete audio. So I think they were going to try to redub the audio, um, and they were going to use um, a different orchestra, right? Yeah, they were going to use the Knights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is a great orchestra, by the way. But um, yeah, so the Philadelphia Opera Orchestra got a little salty about it, so they said, okay. <laughs> with them i help yeah. pour the salt time i'm with yeah. you, or you sisters on this one. <laughs> so a, a rare misstep for one of our favorite companies yeah very rare i mean that's kind of a executive nightmare where you you 
advertise something and you think it's all locked up and then you have to yeah. unpick those stitches. Yeah. As rare That's as rough. a standing ovation at a master class. <laughs> as rare. Yes, that was, Ooh, that was so great. More like Kimon yeah. Hurrah, am I right? <laughs> <laughs> He's probably never heard that one before in his life. No. I'm still keeping it. Carl Orff, I think he wrote maybe seven or nine operas and most of them are utterly brilliant. They're all bangers, George. They're but he's also bangers. racist, though, right? We're, that's he's a confirmed racist, right? He was classified gray by the uh, Denazification Commission, so who knows? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So speaking Gordon of officially say that. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, in the words of my favorite movie, what's your damage, Heather? Uh, I don't understand this. Nobody got the Heather's reference? Seriously? Too much, too much. <laughs> I'm disappointed in all of you. Listeners, back me up. Uh, Heather's is a great movie. So for our friend, acquaintance, whatever, lady we sort of know, Heather McDonald, listen, I am... Um, I, I get that you want to hold on to some of the greats, but here's a little pro tip for you. This isn't a zero-sum game. Yes, we've got a finite amount of time and programming with all of these things. But again, I've said this countless times on this podcast and to so many other people in life, and when I fought with strangers on the internet, my mantra, there is room for everyone at the right kind of table. I repeat, there is room for everyone mm-hmm. at the right kind of table. We don't have to throw out the old white guys. We just need to give them a chance to share their airtime with all those other composers that don't happen to be old white guys. We can do both. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Beautifully put, Ashley. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. Another OBS show in the books. Good call, bad call. We're going to wrap it up that way. As always, Oliver Camacho. Congratulations to the founders and creative team of the inaugural Opera Festival of Chicago. Uh, They gave three performances over the course of about two weeks. Uh, They performed um, Chimarosa's Il Segreto di Susanna, Puccini's Il Tabarro, and a concert of works inspired by Dante's Inferno. Uh, Some really great singing, some really impressive casts, creative Mm. uses of space, uh, venues that are not normally affiliated with opera here in Chicago. Their first outing as a festival. Uh, Looking forward to more from them. That's great. Weston Williams, of course, silent but deadly. Ashley Mm. Hardgrave. Um, I have a very good and very apprehensive and cautious call uh, to the Met Chorus who got to come back to work today for the first time since March of 2020. Uh, the social media of my friends who are in the Met Chorus, it was uh, it was really emotional and very impactful. And I am so excited for them to be able to get back to work. So fingers crossed they can keep going. I have a bad call. I watched a preview trailer of a film called Annette, which was billed as a rock opera film. It features Adam Driver, Kylo Ren. (laughs) I I literally could not tell what was going on and like why this was a rock opera. I just so... The lightsabers really threw me off too, George. I I couldn't do it. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit normwaddell.com on Facebook. Search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore@gmail.com, And subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher or just favorite the show. 
on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is not a suicide pact for classical music, so stop gaslighting us. <laughs> Our creative consultants, Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editors, Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you finish up your back-to-school shopping. We're back with an all-new show next week when Oliver files a field report from Santa Fe Opera. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more chocolate shakes. (laughs) Join us.